Hey, everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. Today, as part of our town hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we present four Democratic candidates for state legislature in the 5th Legislative District. Ingrid Anderson is running for state Senate against incumbent Mark Mullet, and Representative Bill Ramos is defending his seat in position one. We will also hear from Representative Lisa Cowan, who is running unopposed in position two and who is working to raise money for Democratic candidates. Join us now for a conversation recorded live on the evening of Tuesday. Tuesday, June 9th. Hello, everybody. Welcome to tonight's Indivisible Town Hall. My name is Stephan Cox. I am the host of the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I will be your host this evening. Big thanks to Kat with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Anjievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. Special thanks to Louise Pate and Chris Petzold for their help tonight. And big thanks to all of you for joining us tonight, whether you are joining us live or are one of the hundreds of people who are listening on the podcast, or if you are joining us on one of the terrestrial radio stations here in Washington that carries the podcast, I am glad So glad that everybody is with us. So tonight we were going to be speaking, we are going to be speaking rather with four candidates in the 5th Legislative District, which happens to be my home district. It includes Issaquah, Fall City, Preston, Snoqualmie, North Bend, Black Diamond, Carnation, and Maple Valley. So here's how tonight is going to go. We are going to be expending approximately 40 minutes with two candidates for state Senate, the incumbent Senator Mark Mullet and challenger Ingrid Anderson. We will then speak for about 15 minutes with Representative Bill Ramos, who is defending his seat this year. And finally, we will hear from Representative Lisa Cowan, who does not have a challenger. So for our discussion with our two Senate candidates, we will ask each candidate to first introduce him or herself, and then we will have a series of general platform questions. Because we have limited time tonight, we are asking that both candidates limit their answers to 90 seconds. I'm going to be timing on my end, and I'm going to prompt the candidates when it is time to wrap up their answers. Uh, I will hold up a pen like so, and if you don't hear me, I'll just say thank you. I will also encourage uh, both of our candidates to not use the full 90 seconds if they don't need to. I will also let you know ahead of time, uh, everybody watching tonight, that we received a ton of audience questions today, and I have incorporated them into the program. We may or may not have time for live questions. I will do my utmost to get to those, uh, but do rest assured that whatever questions you send tonight will get through to the candidates, and they can respond to you personally. Um, I will also stress that even though our first two candidates are running for the same position, we are not encouraging a debate. We are looking for each candidate to clarify his or her stances on specific issues, but we're asking that there be no count, uh, point counterpoint. So with that, let us meet our first two candidates. Ingrid Anderson is an ER nurse and a psychiatric nurse, and she recently served as vice chair of the Washington State Nurses Association Political Action Committee Board. And then Senator Mark Mullet has served as state senator from the 5th LD since 2012. Senator Mullet worked for more than 12 years in international finance at Bank of America, where he served as the global head of foreign currency operations trading. From 2009 to 2012, he served on the Issaquah City Council. He also owns several local small businesses. Senator Mark Mullet and Ingrid Anderson, welcome to you both. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. So, Ingrid, let's begin with you. Tell us a little bit about your background and how that has prepared you for the job of state senator. Sure. Thank you for asking. So, I've lived in this district for most of my life, over three decades now. I live in rural Snoqualmie in the unincorporated King County. I have 
I've gone to school out here. Um, I'm raising my family out here. I'm very invested in the community. I do a lot of volunteer work out here. But one of the things I'm most proud of is I have been an emergency room nurse uh, that I also specialize in sexual assault uh, forensic exams and psychiatry. And I've done that for nearly 14 years now. I have done a lot of advocacy work to help advocate for patients' rights, workers' rights, and healthcare reform. And in one capacity, I did that serving as the vice chair of the Washington State Nurses Association Political Action Committee. And through that process, I got to work with legislative representatives in Olympia to help pass legislation. And I've made some really good um, partners in Olympia through that process. But there is a lot of work to be done, even though we've passed some great legislation. And I think now more than ever, we see so many people who are without insurance and so many people who have issues with affordability and accessibility in the healthcare realm. Um, and that's not just with healthcare, healthcare, but mental health as well. So I want to bring that perspective as a working person and a mom to Olympia to represent our district. Ingrid Anderson, thank you so much. Senator Mullet, to you, uh, kindly introduce yourself and highlight some accomplishments from your time in office, if you would. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I'm Mark. I was born and raised in Tukwila. And so I graduated Foster High School in 1990. And I went away for college. And then I ended up working away for about 12 years. And I moved back home in 06. And while I was living away, my dad actually became the mayor of Tukwila. And that was what kind of sparked my interest in local public service. He was mayor of 99 for 07. So when I moved home, I enrolled at the Evans School and got a master's in public affairs. And, and after that, I ran for the Esquaw City Council. And that's kind of how I got my start in public service. And in terms of things I'm proud of, I mean, it's, it's been, I really enjoyed my eight years in the Senate. I think the things I'm really proud of is just the actual things I've been able to help get into the district. I felt like I, one of the reasons I ran is I felt like our previous, you know, both in the House and the Senate side, didn't do a good job of getting things into the district, like funded. And, and I think that started with Highway 18 and the interchange in Snoqualmie of trying to get money so we can get that fixed because that's a huge death trap. And we got money for extra lanes in I-90 between this block Bellevue. We got money for a new Tahoma High School in Maple Valley, a new elementary remodel in Black Diamond. And we got money for Lake Spanish State Park and money for Isabel Falsky Road in Kahani. And, and then even just really small things like just this last session, you know, working with Representative Callan and Representative Ramos, like we got $400,000 to Suquamie Valley Shelter Services, which is going to have a huge impact to that organization. And then we were able to get money for, you know, the Issaquah School District had an opportunity if we could provide capital dollars. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you could see my video or not, but thank you so much. Oh, sorry. So I'm going to shift over now and uh, we'll begin our platform questions. And I would like to start by discussing the protests and the uprisings in response to the murder of George Floyd and to police violence generally. So on Sunday, an open letter was delivered to Mayor Jenny Durkin and Seattle Police Chief Carmen Best, calling on them to do several things. First, demilitarize the police. Number two, restrict the use of excessive or deadly force. Number three, increase accountability in police union contracts. Number four, give subpoena powers to independent oversight boards, and number five, to redirect police department funding to community-based alternatives. This letter was signed by Seattle and King County Council members, along with, uh, by my last count, 20 state representatives and eight state senators, most of whom, or many of whom rather, are outside of Seattle. The signatories pledged to advance and support policies in accordance with these demands. Ingrid Anderson, let's start with you. Do you support the reforms laid out in this letter, and would you sign on if asked? 
Um, from what I have read in it, I would love to see more details, but I do support what's going on and what has been suggested. I would love to see it uh, in a little more detail, but I think absolutely we need to look at restructuring our system. And I think now people are crying out for justice and safety uh, and equity. That's something that we as representatives really have to listen to. We have to be open to hearing what the people need. And while I have felt safe as a white woman, if I needed police uh, resources, not everybody has that experience and everybody should. I've worked very closely with the police department in Bellevue for many years um, when I was in the emergency department because often we have very violent patients and they have helped me time and time again. However, um, that's not always the case. And so we do need to look at restructuring. They are not trained on how to be mental health professionals. They should not be going to those calls. We are more likely to have a violent incident if they're going to a call that they are ill-prepared for. So we absolutely need to change our system and our funding and look at putting different resources out on the streets, such as mental health and crisis counselors, so that the police aren't the ones who are showing up to the majority of the calls that they may not be trained for. Same question to you then, Senator Mullet. Do you support the reforms laid out in the open letter? And would you sign on? Have you been asked to sign on? And, and will you? I've been working with Senator Jamie Peterson from Seattle. He chairs our Law and Justice Committee. And we kind of put together our own proposal from the Senate Democrats that we wanted to support. A lot of the themes overlap. I mean, the bill was prohibiting the use of chokeholds, uh, prohibiting you know surplus military equipment going to law enforcement, Body cameras required statewide. Uh, you can't hide your badge numbers. Statewide collection of data when it comes to use of force, and then strengthening the de-escalation. I think the the Senate proposal, the big difference is that fifth point you mentioned when you talk about trying to redirect funding away from law enforcement and other things. One of the just coming to the state Senate from the Issaquah City Council, I try not to get involved in local decisions of how they choose to direct their funding at the local level, it's their local dollars. And so I think that's the only part of the proposal to me that as a state senator who doesn't, you know, live in Seattle, I, I don't feel super comfortable telling them how to how to spend their money in that regards. And but I think the Senate proposal that I've worked on with Jamie Peterson addresses a lot of the same themes. It just doesn't get into that final piece in terms of taking money away from the funding of the current public safety efforts in Seattle. Well, sort of touching on and continuing on the question of uh, local decisions, there's been a lot of concern about failures at the municipal level and even the federal level to provide oversight and accountability for police misconduct. So you've touched on what you have outlined in terms of reform, but I'm wondering philosophically, and this question will go to both of you, but Senator Malt, we'll start with you. What do you see our state government's role as being when it comes to the oversight of police departments? I think there's definitely a role. I mean, when it comes to, for one, we provide funding for the, the police academy that trains a lot of the officers. And so I think because we are providing funding for that organization, we definitely have an ability to influence how that training process is occurring. And that's where they send local police officers, you know, they head to period for that training. And, and I think that the fifth piece that I worked on with Senator Peterson is really around getting statewide collection of data when it comes to police use of force. I think that's our challenge right now in Olympia is there isn't a really, there isn't good data that the state keeps track of when you have incidents at the local level. And I think you can see that from, you know, what happened in Tacoma back in March with Manuel Ellis. It would have been, you know, having a statewide system to really highlight those things, I think will be a, a big step in the right direction. And that's one of the flaws we have in our current system. 
Ingrid Anderson, same question to you. Uh, generally speaking, how do you see the role of state governments uh, playing when it comes to the oversight of police departments? It, that's a great question. So I do like that uh, yesterday, uh, Governor Inslee did uh, recommend starting a task force to look at oversight in this issue. And like uh, Mark was saying, it's good to have somebody who's collecting that data. We need data in order to uh, better uh, evaluate the processes that are at hand, but we absolutely need oversight that is an outside independent group. Um, in order to properly evaluate that information. And uh, we need to bring not just police to the table, but the public to the table. So I would like to see that oversight group um, be a mixture of people who are looking at that data and, and trying to give recommendations on based on that. You know, at the root of all of this is the fundamental question of racial justice. So Ingrid Anderson, I'll stay with you on this question. How will you work at the legislative level specifically to create a more just and equitable environment for people of color in the fifth and in all of Washington? That's a good question. So first we need to prioritize welcoming and creating an environment where people of diverse communities want to come to, right? So we need to work on our culture and being approachable. We also need to have a comprehensive review of the systems that may lead to inequity. So we need to look at schools. How are our testing systems? Are there alternative patterns of learning that we may be able to offer for certain groups um, that are not having their needs met? Um, what about housing, development, zoning? What are we doing um, that could be potentiating um, the issues of inequality and equity across the state? I think we also need to look at how we're running our small businesses. I think we need to look at our state contracts and see if we are excluding minority businesses from getting those contracts. So we need to have that equity lens framework to see if we are excluding access to these state contracts from marginalized groups. Senator Mullet, your, your take on the same question, uh, how will you work at the legislative level and perhaps what have you done in your tenure to create a more just and equitable environment for people of color, not just in the fifth, but across all of Washington? Yeah, well, I mean, and I will say where I grew up in Tukwila, I think Foster High School is probably one of the most diverse high schools you're going to find in the entire state of Washington. I think it's over 80 percent minority there. Uh, and in terms of Specifically, like going back to what we were in the opening comments, like one area, like specifically to Issaquah, is where Issaquah Valley Elementary is, is one of the lower income neighborhoods. And our data has definitely shown the power of giving kids access to early learning, uh, you know, is one of the things that can really change the trajectory of their life. So that's why we partnered this last session with the Issaquah School District to convert the old ad building to preschool classrooms. And it's specifically targeted towards those students who live in a lot of those apartment buildings right off Newport Road down there by Isqua Valley Elementary School. So they hopefully, you know, with our capital dollars from the state combined with the Isqua School District is going to be able to expand access right here in one of the lower income neighborhoods at Fifth to make sure more kids get access to early learning. And, and I think the other, my experience in Tugwilla was you had a lot of students of minority students getting taught by white teachers. And, and I think the thing where we really screwed up at the state level is not getting enough students of color become teachers in our classroom. And we have to make a better effort going forward. And, and that's where I think you have to look in our public university system of finding ways to provide incentives for students of color in our college system to go into these educational programs 
And I think we have to be really aggressive in that effort going forward. Continuing on the subject of racial justice, I want to ask a question to both of you about uh, the, the growing problem of white supremacy in the state. And this question comes from Black Diamond City Council member Christiana De Leon, and she asks, there are community leaders, including those in government, who are using their platform to further legitimize white supremacy. And this exists right in the 5th LD. There are people in government who are either directly involved with or who have directly legitimized neo-Nazis and other alt-right groups. Senator Mullet, what will you commit to doing as a legislator to deplatform and disempower white supremacists in the legislature and elsewhere? Well, and I will say when, you know, last year I did not get involved in endorsing local candidates. I've always had this feeling like I, I try to stay as neutral as possible. I want as many people who are interested in public service to run for office. And, and last year when I first met Christiana and she was explaining her opponent in Black Diamond, I was mortified as I researched this guy to realize he's exactly what you're describing. And so the only endorsement I had of anybody for any spot throughout the entire fifth was in Christiana's race, specifically because the last thing we needed was to have somebody with those kind of views sitting on the Black Diamond City Council. Obviously, unfortunately, I think it still kind of ended up, I think he got there a different route, obviously. But, uh, but I think that was, for me, the reason why I kind of broke my normal tradition of not endorsing people I haven't worked with on a personal level to get involved with her race for that exact reason. Well, you have just a couple more seconds left here, so I'll just ask you, are there things that you would commit to doing as a legislator beyond the endorsement process to deplatform and disempower white supremacists, both in the legislature and, and elsewhere in the general population? I think it's, I don't, it's, I haven't seen any bills recently specifically that would really get at this issue in terms of how you balance what the state can do in terms of local control, I guess, down at the local level. I mean, we even just trying to get Matt Shea out of office was a total nightmare at the state level, you know, because you needed a two-thirds vote in the House of Representatives and they couldn't get the two-thirds vote. And so sometimes you you have people like that who end up with a platform like Matt Shea in Spokane, and it was hard even at the state level to get him out of there. And we have our rules and that's part of the challenge. You need a two-thirds vote to remove, and so it has to be a bipartisan vote sometimes to get those people out of office, which is, we weren't able to clear that hurdle in the 2020 session in the House. Ingrid Anderson, I'll put the same question from Black Diamond City Council member Christiana De Leon to you. What will you do as a legislator to deplatform and disempower white supremacists, not just in the legislature, but elsewhere in the state? This is such an important issue that has really come forth um, in our attention right now, more now more than ever, right? So I um, was very aware of Christiana's race, so I went and door knocked for her. I went and waved signs for her because I thought it was essential that she get this seat. And I remember on election night, what a win it was when we found out that she won that seat, only to later find out that Chris got appointed. It's a huge disappointment. And then we also are very well aware of Matt Shea and the issues that are going on there and the difficulty removing him. I think it's really important uh, to use this moment. It's, it's a reflection point that we're at right now. We need to seize the moment and increase the pressure in our community to reject these public displays of racism. I'm gonna use my platform to promote anti-racist policies because for t- far too long, we've allowed this yeah, but attitude from so many when it comes time to seriously look at these issues. 
And it's time that we stand up socially and politically to hold more accountability. And I plan on holding the members of the caucus accountable to address the, this behavior and look further into legislation that can disempower white supremacists and, and in the legislator, legislature and in our communities. I don't have all the answers for that, but I am very open um, and eager to hear if you guys do have ideas on how that could be um, brought to Olympia. I want to move on now to the issue of economic recovery post-COVID. Governor Inslee has recently begun a phased reopening of the state's economy. The recovery is likely going to take years. Uh, Ingrid Anderson, we'll start with you. How do you feel the state government should be helping individuals and small businesses in the fifth recover? Yeah, so this is obviously an issue that's on everybody's mind, right? As I'm calling voters right now, that's all I'm hearing about is either healthcare or economic recovery. But they're hand in hand. It's different than economic recovery in the past. Right now, this is primarily a healthcare crisis. And unless we properly tend to the healthcare crisis, it's going to potentiate and delay the economic recovery. So as a nurse and a mom, I think the priority is the health and safety of employees and patrons and, and our community. So this issue really highlights the difference of perspective that I have as a frontline worker at the hospital and one that I share with many other people who are at grocery stores. We are at an exponentially higher risk of contracting and dying from this disease than people who may work at home. So we have a lot more at stake for this. However, we also need to get back on our feet, right? So what we need to do is we need to navigate that path to recovery um, in a healthcare mind. Otherwise, we're going to set have significant setbacks and prolong the recovery. We also need to give clarity to businesses. A lot of business owners are not aware of what they can and cannot do. So we need to really be crystal clear on that as we're navigating that. Um, and we also need to advocate for federal dollars so that we can make sure that our small businesses are getting their fair share of money. Another way I would like to uh, help our small businesses is looking at reducing the B&O tax on our small Washington-based uh, businesses. We could help relieve the burden on some of our small businesses if we have progressive tax revenue. And that's something that we can do by um, then giving a B&O tax break. Senator Mullet, same question to you. Uh, how do you feel, what, what is the state's role uh, in helping individuals and small businesses recover here in the 5th? We took, so we had $2 billion of federal money that came in. We took $300 million of that and we sent it out to the cities and in a formula, they got $30 per person in their city. So for like the city of Snoqualmie, they got $412,000. And the constitutional state of Washington prevents you from using that money to give to a business because it's a gifting of public funds. So we worked last month with the AG's office, Department of Commerce, to have that changed in this scenario to say, listen, this federal money was to deal with COVID. If a local city decides they want to do a program to support their local small businesses, then we're going to remove that violation that of it being a gift to public funds, specifically for this batch of money that we pushed out. And we're successful in doing that. So, so Kwame opened it up where you can get a grant from one to $10,000 in your local community without the state being involved. This is Businesses in Snoqualmie applying through their local city where it's really easy for them to get access to their staff. And I think that was like a first step. Uh, in terms of what I think, where I was really frustrated with how the 1.5 phase out, the rollout happened last week in King County was, you know, they announced on Monday, okay, they're going to apply. But nobody knew when the application was going to be accepted. I'm obviously a restaurant owner. It was a nightmare because... Staff, you couldn't know if you're supposed to schedule a staff to work that weekend or not. If the application wasn't approved on Monday, you can't have staff 
on the schedule for Friday night. Well, as it was, it got approved at 11 a.m. on Friday. And then every restaurant owner was scrambling to try to figure out how to get their product in, how to get their produce chopped, how to get their staff in. And so I think we can give a lot more guidance to businesses as we go between phases so they can plan accordingly. Thank you to both of you on that. Let's move next to healthcare. Uh, you, Senator Mullet, you mentioned that you're a small business owner. Uh, we've seen how healthcare costs can burden small business owners in the fifth and, and across the state. Do you support universal single-payer health care for all Washingtonians? And if so, how would you like to get there? Well, I worked with Senator David Frock from Seattle last session. The bill we passed was called Cascade Care. So it's basically we were the first state in the country to kind of do a state-sponsored public option. And I strongly felt that was the first step we needed to take in this process. And obviously, like I've always provided health care for my full-time staff. Uh, both Zeke's and Ben and Jerry's for the last 11 years. And it is extremely expensive. And I think the whole point of getting Cascade Care up and running was just to provide an affordable option for people, whether you're a small business owner or you're somebody who just doesn't have coverage to work for whatever reason. And it was a lift. I mean, a huge, giant lift to figure out what rate you're going to reimburse people at between the gap, I guess you could say, between where Medicare reimburses and where private pay reimburses. And, and it was extremely challenging to figure out, but it's on the books. We passed it. We're the first state. We're trying to implement it. And that's where all my focus has been making Cascade Care a success. So we can kind of provide an example for the rest of the country of how to provide a state-sponsored public option. This is a simple yes or no question that I'm going to ask of both of you. Because this is such a priority for Indivisible, uh, and they've pushed so hard for it, yes or no, do you support Medicare for All? No, for me. I supported the Cascade Care bill, but not Medicare for All. Okay. Let's shift back over to you, Ingrid Anderson. Do you support universal single-payer health care uh, for all Washingtonians? And if so, what's the path in your mind? So this is something that's very dear to my heart. So working in the ER for so long, I would literally see people walk out of the ER not having the treatment that they desperately needed because they were worried about financial bankruptcy. I also would see people who... Um, would just refuse a CAT scan, little simple things. Um, I would also see people who would come in who were unable to pay for their insulin. So they came in um, and had to go to the ICU and almost were dead. I have seen firsthand the implications of not having appropriate health care. And this is now more than ever such an issue. The health insurance market focuses solely on profits. And we need a, a public system. If, if we don't have Medicare for all, we need a public system that can go head to head with private health care insurance systems. And uh, Cascade Care was a great start. And I think that that is something that should be um, applauded because that is not easy. But we need, we need to expand this program. We need to support it and make it accessible for all. As we know, insurance does not necessarily mean access to services because of deductibles and high co-payments uh, co and other issues. So while it is a great start, and I think that is something to be proud of, uh, we need more and we need it now. Um, so many people have lost their insurance lately uh, because of lack of work. I myself had my hours cut at the hospital and nearly lost health coverage for my whole family after working for the ho hospital for nearly 14 years. Um, and I'm not the only one experiencing this issue. I will ask the same question of you, uh, yes or no, do you support Medicare for all? I would like to see us bring a single-payer system to 
to the U.S. I'm going to get you, I'm going to need to get you with a yes or no. Do you support Medicare for all? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Shifting on to the climate, uh, the last two legislative sessions that we've had have made some some strides on the climate crisis, but we know that there's still a long way to go. Uh, Ingrid Anderson will stay with you. What climate legislation would you commit to pushing forward in the 2021 session? So this is something that's also very important to me because I feel like our climate crisis is also a healthcare crisis, right? I am very proud that I have the sole endorsement of the Washington conservation voters in my race. They know I'm gonna be a champion of the Evergreen Future platform. And as we look at creating green jobs and green infrastructure and more, I strongly support and would like to move forward on the clean fuel standards legislation that the house has passed two years in a row and the Senate has failed to bring, bring to the table. If we're going to adequately address climate change, we simply have no choice but to take concrete and significant action to reduce the trans, um, transportation emissions. And clean fuels is the right place to start. My son, he has asthma. So I directly see the implications of uh, our air system, uh, not only on my son and his breathing, but also on my patients, those with pre-existing conditions. Another really important issue as we're looking at race and equity is people in lower socioeconomic regions and communities, they are um, affected so much more than regular people for climate issues because they are often living next to freeways and in areas that they are more susceptible. So I think this is not just a climate crisis issue, it's a healthcare crisis issue and one that of equity as well. Senator Mullet, same question to you. What climate legislation will you commit to pushing forward in the 2021 session? And for me, like I, I mean, climate change is always one of the foundational things that makes me a Democrat. I've never been able to connect with Republicans who deny the reality of climate change. And I, have, I put solar panels in my house back in 08. I got an electric car that same year. And I started this kind of trend of using solar power to charge my electric car that I then drive to and from Olympia every day during session. And when I was on the Esquad City Council, I we were the first city in the entire state to that was landlocked to ban plastic bags. That's how important that issue was to me on the city council. It was what I championed when I was there. I think for the session coming up, the key thing is going to be a, a transportation infrastructure package where the core foundation of that package is going to be a price on carbon. And if you look at it, the package will probably have two components. One's going to be the gas tax that you can bond, so you can build things like the bridge between Vancouver and Portland, and you can replace the West Seattle Bridge. And most importantly, for everyone on this call, we can finally finish Highway 18 after all this waiting over around for it. But the price on carbon, the beauty of that is it's not tied to our 18th Amendment. We can use it to fund transit. And the disaster of the Ironman Initiative was the loss of transit funding. So making a price on carbon, that core one of the core foundational components of our transportation package in 2021 will enable us to have money that we can then use to make sure that transit and Puget Sound continues to get funded. And in that same token, you can do, just because you do a price on carbon doesn't mean you can't do a low carbon fuel standard. You can do both. In that same package where you have a price on carbon combined with a low carbon fuel standard and you move both together in the same deal that gets your projects completed. 
And, uh, of course, hold that thought about the 1890 interchange, because, of course, there's a question, definitely an audience question coming for you about that. Uh, let's talk next about taxes. Washington has the most regressive tax system in the nation. Our lowest income citizens pay 36% of their income in taxes, and the wealthiest pay around 6%. Senator Mullet, do you believe that this is acceptable? And if not, specifically, what would you commit to doing to change that? Well, I, mean, I think that when you look at our tax system, you have to be really clear. There's one tax we have that is completely regressive, and it's the one that screws everything up, and that is specifically our sales tax. If you look at our tax system, there's kind of three pillars of the stool. The B&O tax is not regressive. It's basically business owners paying a corporate income tax. And the property tax, I think, would not be, in my mind, considered regressive because people with more wealth usually have larger property holdings. They pay more taxes. So the sales tax is where everything falls, and, and I think that... The challenge for me during my eight years in the Senate, I haven't seen any attempts to produce any revenue that lowers the sales tax. I know when you look at the people that work with me at Zeke's and Ben and Jerry's, that's the tax, as you accurately point out, that they're paying. So I think if we're going to get serious about tax reform in our state, it's not just about creating new taxes. It's about how do you create a tax revenue that actually lowers the sales tax? Because if the sales tax doesn't go down, which I haven't seen proposals of how we're going to lower that, it's usually just proposals to create additional tax revenue and leave the sales tax exactly where it is. I think that's been my ultimate frustration is I think for the staff that I work with, those new taxes aren't going to benefit them if the sales tax stays exactly where it is at 10% in King County. So I think it's a real challenge to acknowledge that if we're going to make it more progressive, you have to find a way to lower the sales tax. And, and I don't know the best solution to that, but the, the benefit for us of the sales tax right now is we have so many tourists who come to Washington. We have people from out of state that fund our schools, basically. And so if you get rid of it like Oregon does, you're putting that entire burden on your residents. So a creative idea would be, I think, to create a sales tax refund people in certain income brackets could apply for. Ingrid Anderson, same question to you. Uh, we do have the most regressive tax system in the nation. What would you do specifically to change that? So the most important thing I can do to change this is to get elected. So I think it's time that we look at this upside down tax code and really look at it. Um, special interest groups and corporations have spent decades carving loopholes into our tax code. And it's time that we have somebody who stands up and levels the playing field for the regular people. Uh, we don't have time to wait on this and excuses are no longer acceptable. We need to take concrete steps and uh, achieve a form of progressive income, such as a capital gains tax. There are ways that we can implement this that protects regular people. We can exempt sales of small businesses. We can exempt sales of a primary residence. We can exempt 401ks. There are ways that we can do this and still protect regular people. It's time that we look at this seriously and not give excuses of it taking too long to see the income. We are gonna have such a deficit that we have to look at different ways to get income. And that would then relieve the burden on regular everyday people. Um, there's so much that we need to do, but that is the most tangible thing that is on the table and something that I think people are ready to see. I want to shift over now. Our time is getting a little short, and there are so many audience questions that I would like to get to. Uh, the first of which is, uh, does your campaign accept corporate donations? And if so, which corporations? Uh, Ingrid Anderson, we'll start with you. 
I have made a pledge to take no corporate money, um, no fossil fuel money, and that is because I want to be accountable to the people. I don't want them to question my votes when I'm out in Olympia. I want them to know that I am there to advocate for them and their interests. While that puts me at an extreme disadvantage in fundraising, which is critical to win this election, I think it's fundamentally so important to stick with that value system that I am here to be an advocate for the people and I will take no corporate money. Same question to you, Senator Mullet. Uh, does your campaign accept corporate donations? And if so, which corporations? So I've always taken donations from from people who want to support my campaign. I think the key important factor to me, and this is what it really comes down to, is you think a donation is going to change my opinion of how I vote. I completely 100% am going to call bullshit on that because it doesn't. And so like Cook Aquaculture was a company that had the net pen disaster in Puget Sound two years ago. They donated my campaign, and then I got on the floor of the Senate and voted to shut down the net pens. They cook aquaculture because I thought they were irresponsible how they operated them. So the fact that they donated my campaign had zero, zero impact on how I voted on that policy issue. In the same way, when it comes, I could have received money from an oil and gas company, but last year in the session, I led the charge on the hazardous substance tax, which was basically an an increase on, you know, the price they pay per barrel of oil to fund MACA, our cleanup, toxic cleanup sites in the state. So as long as, to me, it's not a question of where you get your money from, it's a question of does that money influence how you vote? And it does not influence how I vote. That's why I feel comfortable not turning away people who want to support my campaign, no matter where they come from. Okay, I promised this was coming up. Uh, Joe asks about the 9018 interchange and the widening of Highway 18 are both top three state project priorities. What will you do specifically in the next term to make sure that they happen, Senator Mullet? This is all my focus has been at since I've been elected the last eight years. I think we've had huge progress getting that money in the 2015 transportation package to begin with, and then in 2017 getting it moved up so they started the process as quickly as possible, and then working with Representative Ramos and Representative Callum last session to get the $30 million of design money to finish the job. So we need $300 more million. That's what we need out of this transportation package next session is $300 million to finish Highway 18. I think we've teed it up, so we're in a position to make that happen. We've had all the meetings, all the conversations. We've really highlighted how many people are dying on this road on a regular basis. And I'm extremely optimistic if I go back to Olympia for another term that I will be successful in getting the final tranche of money that we need to finally finish that. I'm ecstatic with the 180 million we've gotten so far. I think we're gonna be able to relieve the majority of the traffic congestion with the money we've gotten. But at this point, it's time to, when we finish the interchange and we finish widening those first two miles, we wanna have it just be smooth where they just keep going until the thing is done as well. And I think we're setting ourselves up for success with that right now with my partners in the house and, and I'm optimistic we can get it done. Next one is a question for both of you. This comes from Jan. Uh, She says, we've seen numerous rallies, including at our state capitol, attended by people looking to intimidate by carrying firearms. Do you support open carry? And if so, why? Uh, Ingrid Anderson, let's start with you. So I do not support open carry. I think it's often used as an intimidation tactic, and um, I don't appreciate it. I'm a gun owner. I'm a responsible gun owner. I don't want to take people's guns away. What I do want to do is make it so that everybody is safe, that there are stringent uh, regulations, so that not just anybody has a weapon. 
This is not something to be taken lightly. And we have been taking it lightly, and I find that unacceptable. We need to have much stricter regulations on uh, what it takes to buy a gun, who's allowed to have a gun, how they store the gun, and some kind of an oversight in that capacity. And then uh, who's taking firearm safety classes? This is so important. I have time and time again, gun injuries from all kinds of people who just have had accidental firings, let alone the gun violence I have seen in the ER that was on purpose. It's also a real big issue with domestic violence. So I think we need to really look at our gun laws. We need to look at our red flag laws and we need to um, tighten that down. Same question to you, Senator Mullet. Do you support open carry and if so, why? I mean, I've been on the Senate floor, like when I got elected initially, like you could just bring in guns, open carry into the gallery of the Senate. I mean, they literally had the lieutenant governor had to basically change the rules in the Senate. So you couldn't just be up in the Senate gallery as we debated gun bills with your guns out. And, and so it was extremely intimidating when that happened on the Senate floor. So I don't support the idea of thinking open carry is a necessary piece of the Second Amendment at all. I think it's nuts. I mean, my, my time after college, I spent five years living in London. That was 96 to 01. And to me, it was amazing. They had the shooting in Scotland. And seeing the changes that Britain did, which are extremely powerful in making that a safer city to live in, specifically in London, I walked around that city and never really felt danger. And they had gone to the point where they just banned handguns. And so it was, you know, you could still own weapons in London when I lived there from 9601. You could have shotguns and you could have things for both your personal protection and for recreational purposes. But they really got to the core of making it a much safer place through responsible gun legislation. And I've always, I've supported all our initiatives around background checks and domestic violence restrictions when it comes to access to guns. And and I've, you know, I don't think I have a bad gun vote in my entire eight years in the Senate. I think there's so many common sense things we can do that maintain people's second amendment rights, but still make it safer for the rest of the residents in Washington. But the question is, do you support open carry? No, I don't. Okay, thank you. Uh, and this, uh, we have just time for just a couple more questions. Um, this one is specifically for you, Senator Mullet. This comes from Kathleen. She asks, at Governor Inslee's request, the Clean Air Authority Act was introduced by Senator Reuben Carlisle. You as WIP were tasked with bringing it to a vote, but when constituents called, they were told that this was not a priority and could be addressed in the future, and it failed to pass. Why did you go against our Democratic governor on this? I think that bill... It was a court decision that came down in the middle of the session in terms of the authority bill. And, and I think the governor's office was kind of scrambling to figure out what piece of legislation could they put together to respond to that. I never thought that piece of legislation was very well written in terms of, of how it was put together. And I think that's one of the challenges in Olympia. That was not a bill for the, like normally governor request legislation is formulated in the fall it gets dropped in December and it's kind of this super well vetted process. And none of those normal procedures were in place on the authority bill this last session. I just think it needs more work and more time to get figured out correctly. Uh, this is a very large question to uh, to end this evening on, but I'm going to ask uh, both of you, there is likely going to be an emergency session in the legislature to address what may be a $7 billion budget shortfall due to the pandemic. Both of you have touched on a number of priorities. I'm curious to get your specifics on what programs and services you would work to protect. Senator Mullet, can we start with you, please? Yeah, this is... 
I mean, this is going to be really important. This is all going to happen in the next few weeks. And so I'm going to speak really candidly. Uh, when I do my math on how we can get through to June 30th next year without running out of money, there's, there's two things we need to do. And if we do them, then I don't think we have to have any large program cuts during a special session. And, and the first is the funding that we added in during the last session is scheduled to start on July 1st. If we keep that funding from starting, so no one's getting a cut, we're just not adding basically. And that will save us roughly 400 to $450 million. And the second piece of the puzzle is our state employees are scheduled to get a 3% pay increase on July 1st. And I know it's difficult politically because our state employees work their ass off. Nobody doesn't, we don't want to see them not get their pay increase. But the reality is if we just pause that on July 1st, that creates another $350 million of savings. And those two things right there combined with being really creative of how we use our federal money, because the way the federal money's come into us, there's a lot of ways we can use it. Like a specific example in March, you know, we had to retrain our prison system, all the staff in our prison system to better prepare how you can separate people for COVID. Well, we can use all the salaries of the people in our prison system for March with the federal money, and we're going to pay that money anyway. So I think if we're creative of how we do it, we can avoid some bad decisions, but we can't increase spending on July 1st. And, and it pains me to say it, but I don't think we can afford the state employee increase. If we have a state employee increase, I think we're going to end up with a lot of bad program cuts. So my idea is just avoid that increase and keep our programs. Uh, Ingrid Anderson, same question to you, and it is a broad one, uh, but uh, if you were in office, what programs and services would you prioritize and work to protect? So I think it's really um, important that we shouldn't walk into this with a radical cut framework. I think we need to approach this looking at our values and the systems we worked so hard to set up. And I am unwilling to balance the budget on the backs of the hardworking public sector employees like teachers, paraeducators, public health employees that work so hard for us. Um, I know that we are going to have to be very careful with our money and what we do with it. Um, There are going to be some very hard decisions to be made ahead. Um, But I think how you walk into it and the framework you do with that um, really talks to uh, perspectives. um, And I am that of an advocate for our working people. That is why I'm running for office. Uh, This is something that is so important to me. And I think it will also lend to recovery of our economic, um, you know, crisis that we're having if we properly fund those most important foundational systems. Okay. Thank you so much to both of you. I'm just going to give each of you 60 seconds for a brief final word and just let people know where they can find out more about your campaign. Senator Mullet, we'll start with you. Uh, I think our website is electmarkmullet.com. And I really appreciate you taking the time to host, Stefan. And I think these are great to get people. I think everyone's getting used to this world of Zoom that we're living in now. And uh, it's always exciting to see people get on these things. And and I appreciate you inviting me on today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Senator. And uh, Ingrid Anderson, you'll get the, the last word here. Uh, just a couple words about, uh, about your campaign where people can find out more. Yeah, so it's a great campaign. I'm getting lots of endorsements, a lot of energy around this campaign. Getting a lot of people volunteering, making phone banking. We're going to do postcard uh, writing. I'd love to have you guys join. Um, In the chat, I'll put up information on where you can find me on social media, as well as my website and my email. 
You can always email me questions if you have any concerns that we didn't get addressed here tonight. I would love to keep that door open and have that conversation with you. So please reach out. Don't hesitate. Uh, my website is IngridForStateSenate.com and on uh, Facebook, it's Ingrid Anderson for State Senate. And please reach out. I'd love to talk. And everybody who asked questions tonight, and I realize that we simply did not have time to get to those questions. Those questions will be forwarded to the candidates. Thank you so much, uh, Senator Mark Mullet and Ingrid Anderson. We will turn next to Representative Bill Ramos. Bill Ramos is the state representative position one for the 5th LD. Previously, he was on the city council of Issaquah. He also worked for the U.S. Forest Service for 30 years and for the U.S. Department of Transportation for eight. Bill Ramos, hello to you. Hello, how are you doing, Stefan? I'm good, good man. So, yeah, it's good to see you, literally. Uh, <laughs> as as uh, the senator was saying, it seems like so long since we've actually uh, seen people. So we have about 15 minutes together, and I'd like to just start with you where we began our conversation with Senator Mullet and Ingrid Anderson, which is about uh, the murder of George Floyd and the nationwide protests against police violence. Uh, can you just give us your top-line thoughts on the events of the last two weeks? Yes, um, and thank you. Um, th- these are this is hard topics and and what I feel is everybody has their own filter and important biases that you view things from and I think for people who know me a little bit two things you need to know and that is that um, the um, th- the most important thing uh, to me is that I grew up in East Oakland California and I come from a Mexican American family and that filters everything I see. And for folks that are saying this is new, this is nothing new to me. I grew up with this since I was a kid and it's very dear and real. And the only thing new about what's going on is that we have easy access to video cameras in our cell phones. So I see this as something I've been working with my whole life any way I can through just uh, job opportunities uh, and where I've worked trying to hire folks and give them opportunities to, that's critical and in any way I can. And that's just what I've done my whole life. That filter's always been there. I'm a member of the member of color caucus for the house, uh, Democrats, and I continue to work on these issues. And the one thing that makes a difference here, somehow this time feels like there's a, there's, I'm opti- I'm a, normally an optimistic guy. And this one feels like there's more optimism and this time we can actually make the change versus talking about it, going home and having an, you know, another protest in 10 or 15 years. This time I'm really thinking we can take this political uh, power that the people have given and make those systemic changes that we need to make. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm overwhelmed and ecstatic at the same time. Well, so then how do you channel that as a state representative? How, and this gets back to a question that we were talking about earlier, which is, you know, the question of oversight. You know, in, in many instances, what the police are doing is broadly illegal. It's just a matter of enforcement and oversight. So we've talked about failures at the federal level, right? And we've talked about failures at the municipal level. So you as a representative, how do you see the role of the state legislature in police oversight and racial justice? And that's where we can really make uh, the difference. You know, when I was young, I'd look and, and you refer to them, the government, the people have the power. And now I'm in that place and we can do that. And working closely with the member of color caucus, we've got things lined up to, to make those changes. We have to get oversight for police and, and law enforcement in an area outside of the locality. 
you can't oversight your neighbors very well. We, so we have to separate that. So that's one big move we have to make in, in that part of law enforcement. But much bigger for me is the whole social structure, the systemic racial bias that's in everything we do. I want to work on the big picture. I want to get that economic opportunity for everybody. If we give, if all kids get good early learning, get good education, have a good opportunity for a real job that's going to make money, that's going to be able to uh, allow them to support their family, all these other problems go away. I mean, you just have to give people the opportunity. Everybody who works hard, you give them the opportunity to work hard, just they need that opportunity and we have to break down those barriers. So when they go to get a loan for a house, they don't get turned away. Uh, just, uh, you know, three times as many uh, folks get turned away that are people of color than are white. All those pieces are critical. And we, those are the ones we need to break down and we need to get that oversight in a place that they can really have an effect and not such close, so close to the action in all those pieces. And we can put that together in the legislature. I believe we can. It's going to take a lot of work and a lot of, uh, you know, diligence. But I believe we can do that. And if the people stay behind us, we'll get that passed versus the little steps that we've been taking for many, many years. Well, there are going to be a lot of eyes on Olympia in the new session uh, on that front for sure. Let's talk a little bit about something else that is uh, first and foremost on people's minds, and that's the climate crisis. I'd love to talk a little bit about your work on the climate. I should mention that you sit on the Natural Resources Committee. In 2019, you introduced a carbon sequestration bill that did not make it to the floor, but last session, you managed to get it passed unanimously, and I'm just wondering if you could tell us, first of all, tell us a little bit about the bill, and then tell us how you managed to get that through. Yeah, and thank you for that question. I'm very uh, uh, happy with this result of of getting to work with folks to get to a, a good place. Carbon sequestration is, to me, a base of where we're going to get to. People talk about carbon pricing and all these big climate change we, uh, changes we have to do. And getting a base policy on carbon is where we have to get everybody together to start. So that was my goal on that, to get folks to say, here's carbon policy. Let's get together and do that. It was too controversial. Normally, a bill that has carbon in the title just doesn't go very far because everybody's going to fight it. I sat down with everybody from all the extremes, working with them from one end of the industries to the environmental to all those groups. And believe me, we had some hard discussions. A lot of people were mad at me at various points in time uh, <laughs> and, and didn't like what I was saying. But we worked through it, continued to work, talk through it, and get to a point where I believe we now have a base of agreement. And, we, and the unanimous vote was just absolutely incredible. When you think about the extremes in the House, mentioned before and other times that, that some of the extreme views we have in the House, to get everybody to vote for this carbon sequestration bill was, was a phenomenal feat. And uh, just really proud of all the work that everybody did to do that, to sit down and keep coming back to the table, get the wording right, argue over this paragraph, put that one back in and make it so that we all got to a base position. And now we can really make some forward movements on, on uh, climate change, I believe, from this point. Yeah, you've said that it sets a basis for comp uh, the conversation on action steps. So again, something else we'll be looking forward to in the 2021 session. Just talking about a little bit uh, more about some of your other work. Um, very briefly, I wanted to hit on the Census Bill of Rights, which is something that you sponsored. Obviously, this is very important. This is a census year. Uh, redistricting happens around censuses. Tell us about that bill. Yeah, and this is something that is interesting. The folk, Many people voted against this. 
It was not unanimous by any means. And what their common problem with uh, statement was, we don't need this. Why does anybody need this? And what they didn't understand is that those communities, those people of color, the lower uh, economic uh, communities, they needed this. And those folks didn't see that. And I had to speak up for that. I worked with a lot of folks in, in the Latino community, say, what do we need? And what this did was basically lay out literally a bill of rights of why people had the rights to fill out the census. And they had the right to do that without any uh, intimidation from others. If you know of this administration, uh, you know, has been pushing a lot of uh, rhetoric that is against counting people in, in uh, some communities so they could change the vote. They can do lots of things of pressure. I wanted those folks to have that ability to say no. So, so we actually put that part of it was a law that said, if you intimidate, interfere or anything with census or our census taker, it's an actual criminal penalty. Before it was like, Ah, you just shouldn't do that. You know you shouldn't do that. But now we actually put a criminal penalty on there so we could do something about it. But, you know, 10 years ago, no one thought about this for the census because it wasn't an issue. But because our society has gotten to where we are today with the rhetoric from the administration, this became a necessary thing to protect our people to get counted, which is the most important and basic right we had to do. And it was the, it was, it was the number one priority of the member of color caucus to get passed. Uh, this this last session, so it, it worked, helped a lot in getting that passed. Too. Great. You also sit on the Transportation Committee, and I wanted to bring up a little bit of your work there. Uh, the 5th LD, as we mentioned in the last segment, has a number of very large-scale transportation improvements, including the 1890 interchange and the widening of the 18. Can you talk about what your role has been in those projects? Yes, and, and as I say, it was spoken about earlier. I, uh, I I got a nickname from a number of folks in the legislature. They just call me Mr. Highway 18 <laughs> uh, because I never let anything go by without talking about Highway 18 because I keep that in everybody's the forefront of everybody's mind in the transportation committee that we cannot let that go. It is the number one uh, project in our district and it's one of the number one projects in the state. Um, uh, Senator Mullet talked about we, he's done a work previous to that. I've kept it going there to where the um you know everybody was afraid of losing funding for that well the project is going on as planned right now they're getting ready to prepare the contract to uh, put it out to bid this fall so nothing has slowed down we not let COVID or any of these other things slow that project down bid out this fall hopefully start construction next spring and we will have that interchange going um, and then continue uh hopefully the funding for the all the widening we'll get some of the widening that widening done with this part um, but to finish all of it, we'll have to put some of that funding in uh, a transportation package or some other place to continue that. And that will be in my, continue being my number one priority through that to finish that stretch of 18 and, and the interchange. I'd love to talk about some of your other priorities. Uh, we, we know you're Mr. 18, so uh, we don't, <laughs> I won't ask you about that. But, you know, there's a lot that's going to happen between now and the next session. But if the Democrats uh, expand, keep the majority, expand it ideally, what would be a few of your priorities for the 2021 session. And, and you know, it, it, it's simple in the fact of our democratic values. I talked about a little bit before economic, economic justice and opportunity for everybody and social justice and inclusion for everybody and protecting the climate. Those three things incorporate everything we're doing. I think this, in this place and time, that emphasis is going to be in, in the, the social justice norm. We just got we have to take this moment in time to take advantage and change 
a projection of history. And so our future is different than our past. It hasn't been for a lot of years. The system's been working the way it was designed. We need to change those root pieces of the system. Those are gonna be hard. You gotta sit down and really work to get that because as you mentioned, most of the things that are happening nowadays, they're illegal. They still happen, right? So how do we put safeguards in there, oversight things that can make sure that if things are illegal, they really don't happen or there are consequences if they do. That get, that's, that's, that's difficult writing to do. That's hard work. It's gonna take time. It doesn't get fixed with a sound bite or this or that. It's really sitting down and saying, how do you get all those folks lined up to make sure we implement something that will last and will really make that change over the next you know, few years, five years, 10 years. So 20 years from now, the next generation is just, you know, they don't even think about this anymore. It's just changed and it's what they grow up with. That's where we want to get. I suspect that your words are absolutely resonating uh, with everybody listening tonight. In fact, I see a few here, here's. So uh, just uh, one last thing from you. Where can people find out more about your campaign? Sure. Um, thank you very much. My website is real simple, voteramos.org. And my Facebook page is Vote Bill Ramos. Um, so you can go there and look at any, uh, and uh, find out what's going on. We're, we're leading the hard-fought campaign. We have two opponents this year. So we're, we're in it to win it again, just like we were two years ago. And uh, uh, we're going to work hard and get there. And we use all your help and support because that's what it takes to get there. So thank you now for, for uh, everybody who's helped already and who's going to help in the future. And thank you for your time, Stefan. It's been a pleasure. Uh, Representative Bill Ramos, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, we will finish our evening tonight uh, with Representative Lisa Cowan. Let's bring her in. She is representative for the 5th LD in position 2, and she's running unopposed this year. So I thought instead of having uh, like a Q&A format, I thought I would just open the floor to her to maybe outline some of her key achievements and talk about what she's hoping to accomplish in the next session. Uh, Representative Cowan, welcome. And uh, the floor is yours for about five minutes. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thanks for letting me have an opportunity, even though I'm running unopposed. I am um, grateful for that because I can continue to focus a lot more energy and effort on the legislative matters at hand and continue to do a lot of interim work, um, both on bills that I passed this last session. And uh, of course, um, top of mind and, and number one is how do we really work and move the dial on um, this great moment in time that we have in history, which is both tragic and uh, um, momentous opportunity for us to change the trajectory of racism in uh, our state and certainly in our in the fifth legislative district um, and hopefully across the nation. And so I think when you have this moment in time where you have public will and you have legislative will, um, historic things can happen. And I am so fortunate to be able to partner with Representative Ramos in um, looking forward to this next session to really move the dial on what that takes. And so it starts with, you know, immediately we were in a caucus conversation today. Um, there's already several meetings scheduled and sessions that are being had with deep listening um, around what we can do around our um, criminal justice environment, what we can do with our, um, with our police force, what do we need to do, and the work that has already been started and begun but can now be elevated and talked about from a funding perspective and a funding priority around what we're doing around first responders for um, 
issues that we see across our society around homelessness and um, mental health and substance use and uh, issues that often police are brought into respond to that we need to try to make sure that the right help is coming at the right time to the right people. Um, and it's not about defense and uh, criminal response as it is to um, support and providing the help and, and uh, societal responses that they need to um, get healthy and to make everybody safe around them and what we're doing. So there's just a lot of conversations that are already moving and happening in that direction. Um, so I am uh, wanted to talk a little bit about just uh, quickly, I am, Vice Chair of the Human Services Early Learning Committee, which serves uh, all of our, our child um, welfare systems, that's the, our foster care, as well as our subsidized child care supports. It also covers juvenile justice, um, and it also covers um, our developmentally uh, supports for, that we, we have for our, our youth and families. So uh, that's a huge area where we want to continue to support. That's also a typical area that gets huge uh, budget cuts when we're in a um, budget um, downward trajectory like we are right now. So being sure that we can figure out ways that doesn't compromise service and supports for our systems and where we were coming in recovery from 2008 to where we are today, trying to figure out how we can minimize those impacts, especially even if we past new revenue. We know that that new revenue won't come in the door till 2023, possibly um, sooner, unless we use existing sources, which we all know existing sources aren't, um, they're upside down and they're regressive. So we want to not, we don't want to cause more harm. So that's a, a committee of work that I'm doing a deep dive work in as well. Um, I'm also on the education K-12 committee. Uh, where we're doing a lot of work, including one of my bills around institutional education, where we have seen it with my school board hat on the um, the prison pipeline and what we're doing with youth that are incarcerated and we're failing them tremendously around how we're educating them and being able to provide a pathway that actually provides a change in directory to give them hope and a successful future as opposed to giving them a sentence and then actually getting them further behind in their their education and setting them up for um, recidivism. So I get to start that task force. That was a bill that passed and we're actually starting our first meetings in a couple of weeks and uh, hope to have a lot of legislative great ideas for the next session coming out of that task force. Um, another major element of mine, um, well, my last committee is capital and this last session I was um, asked to join in as vice chair, which also puts me at the negotiation table with the Senate on capital, which is great. I get to sit across the table. Um, from Senator Mullet on that. Um, and and uh, as you know, from the fifth, we were able to secure a lot of great funding for the fifth and what we need to do from including early learning and housing and a lot of great agendas coming out of the capital budget. Um, one of my other major areas and a lot of my legislation was dealing with uh, youth mental health and children's behavioral health and youth mental health. And um, probably one of my largest bills that uh, passed through this last session was the um, reauthorization of the Children's Behavioral Health Work Group. And as part of that reauthorization, I made sure that there was a permanent subcommittee of that work group that was specifically addressing the needs of the behavioral health of our youth in our K-12 systems. So um, my appointments for that committee have just come through and uh, it looks like I will be taking over as chair of that Children's Behavioral Health Work Group. Um, starting around September, that's the that's the goal. Um, and as we work through that agenda and what we're doing, making sure that we've got uh, services that 
our children need in any direction, in any way they need, from prenatal all the way up to age 25 um, for our young adults. And um, when you talk about systems then and how systems and institutions show up um, with barriers, with bias, uh, and perpetuate racism, uh, working from a school board background and pushing very hard in that world for an equity policy that could put in and lay down the foundations that allow you to create accountability measures um, and to push in and to give the frontline service providers the, um, the teeth to do the right thing and to say the right thing and to buck the system if it's not showing up the way it's supposed to be showing up is just, it's paramount and it's key. And if we're not in eliminating bias and racism in our K-12 schools, I think this was mentioned earlier um, by Ingrid and uh, by Mark and Bill, um, then we're not gonna be able to move the dial completely on, on racism and where we need to go. So, and I know it's often heard and I heard this a, a while ago in a class that I was in, um, about putting on an equity lens on what we need to do. And for us, I think, especially coming um, as a white female, I, you know, that's what it is. I'm putting on this lens and I'm trying to look through it and see how it might impact somebody that doesn't look like me, a person of color or a black person. And what we really need um, from society and from leaders is not a lens, but we need LASIKs. I mean, that's the, and, that, and I really appreciated that comment, right? It, it's not something that we just take on and off that's at the comfort of us, that's the definition of privilege. And so I think we need to make sure that we understand we need societal LASIKs and, and leadership LASIKs and everything that we're doing. And it starts by us completely understanding where we're coming from. The one last thing that I would ask you in closing is, uh, I know that since you are uh, running unopposed, you've said that you're gonna be fundraising for other candidates. So uh, where can people go to donate money? Yeah, so um, my, uh, my you can still go to my website and donate, and the, the funding that I um, will receive will be used to uh, promote the, the platform that um, I support, that I think a lot of us here in this call support, and we'll be working to do that and support candidates that will also ultimately be um, supporting and running on these, this front. So you can go to lisacallen.org, and you can go to, um, that's my website, and uh, my email address is elect.lisacallen. Um, and I'm happy to uh, support and facilitate town halls and conversations. I know our candidates are all very busy, um, but if you need some place to be able to talk about some of these platforms and these issues, please call upon me. And I will um, would love to have some uh, fundraising conversations with you too, that, that we can get out and support and figure out how we support these candidates that um, including myself in the future and what we're doing, um, right, uh, to, to stay strong as a, Democratic Party in the state, state house and the states. Representative Callan, um, I can say, because you're running unopposed, I can just say this. You're awesome. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for <laughs> everything that you do. I'm, I'm, I'm so proud that you, uh, that you represent us here in the fifth. Thank you to all of our candidates tonight. Uh, Senator Mark Mullet, Ingrid Anderson, Representative Bill Ramos, and of course, Representative Lisa Callan. Thank you again to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Andrzejewski with Indivisible Tacoma. A reminder to join us on Tuesday, June 16th for a town hall with Democratic candidates for the 44th Legislative District. The website for our show is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast Podcast Network. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.